Steve and Kevin Review Corset 2019 on episode 81 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 81 of So Many Insane Plays, our Corset 2019 review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We've got a lot of corset cards to discuss today, Steve, so we're not going to dilly-dally too much. <laughs> but from an announcement standpoint, I do want to talk about a few upcoming tournaments in my neck of the wood. And importantly, on the weekend of August 18 and 19, there are tournaments in two places nearby. In South Bend, Indiana, on the 18th, there's an Eternal Weekend trial. So that's a sanctioned event, mind you, for, awesome. for a buy at Eternal Weekend, which is awesome. And the next day... There's Proxy Vintage at BC Comics in Battle Creek. So that's the 18th trial in, uh, in South Bend. The 19th, Proxy Vintage in Battle Creek. And so both of those events are going to be cool. I hope that we can get better attendance going in the northern Indiana area. We've got some some good friends and players who come up from there with reliability to our Battle Creek events. And it's awesome that they do. But unfortunately, we're not sending as many Michigan players down to Indiana as we should be. So hopefully that trial will uh, drive a little awareness and send some desire to go down there. You sound like it's a state of civil war. Like we need <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like you're filibustering south. It's like <laughs> no, it's quite the contrary. We're all trying to support each other, but it's just not working out quite so well. And so I'm trying to be part of the change that I want to see in the world. How about you, Steve? Any tournament announcements or other content announcements? Well, there are. Yes, there are two uh, vintage events, vintage tournaments at Eudaimonia. Udo Games in Berkeley. Uh, the first is August Sunday, August 5th, and the second is Sunday, August 26th. So those will be good practice events for paper vintage here in uh, the Bay Area. Awesome. Those are both proxy events? They are both proxy. I, let me get the specifics. It is up to 15 proxies allowed. Okay. Awesome. All right. So go out there and play some vintage. So before we get to our set review and report card, though, Steve, I think you'd like to talk about the VSL, the Team VSL, which just recently concluded. And <laughs> we have a bit of a, a retrospective to give from our participation and our opinion on the matter. What do you say? Well, I was actually hoping to throw the ball back in your court on that. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to get your your reflections as well. I thought overall it was a really fun season, and I, I really hope they bring back the format. But um, you, know, you, you were pretty much at the helm at the end there. I wanted to hear your thoughts. Well, the whole thing, I think, was a, a really pretty great success, all things considered. The teams were made up of good, interesting, diverse players. We had fun decks. I think that the format restrictions were overall a pretty strong success. There, By the end, things got a little wild and, and experimental in some cases, but certain teams did it right from the start, and then at the end it was kind of famously cool, but... Um, it was a nice mixture of, hey, this is a really potent, powerful deck, like uh, Team Snap Cardster did really well with their outcome decks, which they had been playing to good success in the challenges, mixed with 
things we talked about before in terms of how many variations of a deck can you bring to bear in one in so one week and the dredge that was always, yeah. yeah the dredge of palooza and and that brought fun results in a couple of different ways and we also pushed and poked into some corners of the metagame vis-a-vis blue cantrips we saw a variety of blue cantrips played we saw some fun victory conditions played in the workshop decks and also it produced some some pretty exciting results we had some weeks that were sweeps which is fun in a certain way and we had some weeks that went all the way down to the wire like our first win you know all the way to the last game of the night and so i think everything in between i think it was just a, a pretty great success it produced fun decks good players, fun teams, interesting combinations, and I can't imagine that Randy won't be attracted to doing something very much like it again. Yeah, I think he even said so much in the final episode that he's looking to bring mm-hmm. bring back this format, which I'm, I'm really excited about again. Uh, it, it's just too bad we got victimized by both LSV playing at a level that's beyond exceptional. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I in particular suffered him getting multiple blind reads with Cabal Therapy, yeah, that and was I, a wild. I mean, he just played so so stellar. At the end of the match that I lost when I was playing Just Guy, um, I didn't even understand how I lost the game. I mean, uh, there was a tactical misplay where I missed time to dig through time, but I think you you made the point that it really didn't matter. I mean, I probably wasn't going to win that match. And I think that in retrospect, our view is that we underestimated how good that deck would be against the Just Guy deck. Mm-hmm. Is, is that is that your opinion? It is, and I also think that out of the combination of necessity, which I would put in quotes because they didn't have to bring four dredge decks, but the necessity of the position they put themselves in, combined with the unusual nature of that particular dredge deck having the loam plus wasteland package, gave that deck a, di- a dimension that dredge, common dredge doesn't have. Right. And I think our lack of familiarity with playing against a deck like that, you know, it played closer to lands right. than traditional dredge, combined with the fact that. It, it produces a certain kind of inevitability. And those factors combined with Luis's stellar play, as you put it, meant that it really wasn't a good matchup for the Jeskai deck. And we did not intuit that at the, in the moment. Or anticipate it. Yeah. I, I mean, I resolved Containment Priest and it did almost nothing. It held him back for a little bit. What's interesting is that this kind of configuration is now appearing in, the, it just appeared in the, in the uh, deck that won the Vintage Challenge this past weekend. Which mm-hmm. happened to be Dredge with two Life from the Loam main deck. <laughs> yeah, and two, I think that two Cabal yeah, Pit main deck and two Riftstone Portal as well. This is definitely VSL informing the community as to some fun things to try. And I think this particular concept is more than just fun. I think it does some things, like you mentioned, it circumvents Containment Priest and Cage in a way that forces other decks to have a legitimate other plan for addressing the right. matchup. Right. And that's important. That's valuable in Vintage, especially when Jeskai is the go-to Xerox deck now, and Containment Priest and Cage are still, I think, numbers one and two in terms of dredge hate. Exactly. And unfortunately, I had to be the victim of that in a high-profile, <laughs> high-visible, <laughs> you know, high, highly yeah. visible event and moment. <laughs> well, you can say that you were there when. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> nice. So... It's funny you should mention this particular aspect of the bigger picture of the Team VSL because I was speaking with friends at uh, the tournament in Battle Creek that I alluded to, the monthly event that just happened this past weekend, and we talked about exactly that. Uh, My friend from Indiana, who's one of those Indiana players I mentioned, Steve Walsh, he 
is very interested in what that aspect of Dredge has done to the archetype, what it does to certain matchups, and what it does to the hate that people bring. And we discussed exactly what you just mentioned, that Containment Priest is simply not good enough if your opponent has access to Life from the Loam, especially if they have access to Wastelands too. But even if they don't, they can still just play the longer mana plan and out-threat you if you're not addressing or removing cards in their graveyard. And that just brings an interesting dimension to to Dredge, and it highlights how the format, most decks in the format fight Dredge by trying to be the control deck. Right. Almost everyone is trying to become a prison deck of sorts against Dredge, like cut them out of options and just and play a grindy game, essentially. Now, Workshops doesn't play much grindy, right? That's maybe overstating the issue. But the the blue-based decks, the Dejeskai and Xerox decks of other kinds, are really just trying to slow them down. And this loan package circumvents that, sidesteps that plan. And so we may have to see a, a shift in how decks sideboard against Dredge, replacing priests with things like more Rest in Peace, Leyline of the Void, and more Tormod's Crypts, because those things actually remove Leylines and remove that kind of inevitability, but they have their own weaknesses, as you know. So I think this particular thing is a really interesting output from this particular example Season in of VSL. VSL. Yeah, it's one of yeah. the more salient examples of the VSL shaping the vintage metagame. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just Wasteland. I mean, this this winning deck list by Karate Dom, Karate Dom, um, uh, July 21st. He has two Cabal Pit main decks, so the Loam really is able to do some things. And this mm-hmm. isn't an isolated instance. There were several of this deck in the top 32. In fact, let's see if I can find it. I think that it was the ninth place deck was virtually, was very similar in some respects. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a thing. This is a real thing. I mean, the 10th place deck as well. The 10th place deck, in fact, I think was identical to the first with the two loam, two cabal pit, two riftstone, one strip mine. Yeah. I think this is highlighting also, it highlights a number of things in my eyes, but one of them is the some comparative differences between Magic Online Vintage and Paper Vintage. I think that Paper Vintage players, there's a more of a tendency for players who don't play online don't see the rapid metagame shifts to not really test and consider specific variations in how decks are constructed. I think a paper player is much more likely to show up to a tournament in the course of the last few months and the next few months with their standard dredge hate, right? With with three cages, three priests or whatever in a Jeskai deck, and they may be caught off guard by this trend. And so I would just like to point out to our audience, if you're the sort of person who plays vintage primarily or only in paper, then don't sleep on this evolution of dredge, because all it takes is one person in your local metagame to have been paying attention to this, and you might find yourself at the wrong end of inevitability in a matchup that you were previously pretty comfortable with. Any other final thoughts on the Team VSL? Just that I, if you liked this season, I would say stay tuned because I cannot imagine that Randy won't be trying to perfect this particular model going forward, and I'm all for it. And with that, let's talk about our set review, but it wouldn't be a set review without our report card. So let's see how we did on Dominaria. So Dominaria, Steve, was much like many other sets. We reviewed more cards than we predicted would see play. That well, well, that's that's not a bad thing, Kevin. 
it's better to over, to review cards that don't see play than to uh, not review cards that do see play. <laughs> I agree, and we have one of those to discuss, unfortunately, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But for the likes of Lich's Masteries, Elfrin Void, Mox Amber, Squee the Immortal Broken Bond, and Yargle Glutton of Urborg, we predicted zeros and the results were zero across the board. So let's talk about some more active cards. The first is Voltaic Servant. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted zero. The actual was two. Two. Interesting. In the same event, in fact, a 16-player tournament, Team Serious oh. Open, and it was uh, a couple of Team Serious hooligans that brought Voltaic Servant Workshop decks <laughs> to the fore, and they included Traxos as well. It was pretty cool. I would posit that this was mostly a let's see if it's possible kind of thing, and it definitely is and was in this case, but there hasn't. that was in mid-May, right? And there hasn't been much action for, for Voltaic Servant since then. There was one more that was in a top eight in a trial in the East Coast, but it was... Um, that tournament, as far as I can tell, was only was below 16 players. It looks like it was only eight players, but I'm not sure if that was the total turnout or not. According to TC decks, the number of players is unknown. So uh, <laughs> I've tried to reach out to Ryan Eberhardt to see if he could confirm how many players were in this event because he was in third place in this particular event. <clears throat> so well, there's a chance. Sounds, yeah, there's a chance like there's a, one more appearance. <laughs> well, it sounds like a Hannah's cust- case of Hannah's custody to me. Which, if you recall, is an allusion to Eric Miller, <laughs> Eric Miller yeah. playing Hannah's Custody in his uh, Trinisphere Workshop Aggro deck, mm-hmm. when he, the Riddler, when he won Star Stadium's Power 9 series. And it certainly wasn't because of the power of Hannah's Custody, it was because of the power of four Trinisphere with four Crucible and Wastelands. So, <laughs> 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 Yeah, Hannah's Custody was an interesting anti-welder tech back then, as well as anti-other kinds of removal. So... Voltaic Servant goes down as a yes, it's possible, and it's probably not going to be good enough going forward kind of situation, but it does go down as a a, a, sl- well, a slight miss for it us. It depends if you count. I mean, 16 is usually below the threshold we've used in the past. We've usually required that there be actually 17 players so that you actually get five rounds. Oh, I see your point. Yeah, we 16 is right on the cusp for us for this, so... Next up is Damping Sphere. Now, this one's interesting. Steve, you predicted 17. I predicted 10. The actual was 10. Wow. Spot on, <laughs> right? Now, it's interesting, though, because you and I talked about how strong this the, this card affected the form, how strongly it interacted with lots of tech, uh, technology in the format. And the community as a whole was not really quite as enamored as you and I were. I took the under with a 10 and got it right. But I would say that I was expecting to be to be under with this one. And so I think that Damping Sphere was a little bit less good than the excitement was around it. I broke out the the 10 appearances that I saw, and there are two in the main and eight in the side. So I think Brian Kelly might be responsible for a third of these, personally. Wow. Um, I, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but I know Brian was playing one in his Oath decks for a little while. I think the card could increase in relevance in the future due to certain printings or metagame shifts but for now it's really just uh it's an okay solution that hasn't really caught on yeah i think it's interesting there's a lot of questions that uh, arose with this card's release and one of them is is this a main deck card or a sideboard card Mm -hmm. now um our answer to that is it remains provisional but i think the the early answer is this is a sideboard card and it's a sideboard card it's really hard to utilize in a way that doesn't also hurt your own deck. <laughs> so there's a narrow range of, of, of strategies that can actually optimize this card. 
in terms of synergies and dissynergy. Mm-hmm. Agree completely. Next is Weatherlight, which I always want to call the Weatherlight, but is not. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted one. The actual was one. Huh. Yeah. So I've got two in a row spot on hits here. And as we discussed, this is a, this was a sideboard appearance in a workshop deck. And otherwise, relatively standard Ravager aggro deck. And one appearance of the Weatherlight in the sideboard. It's next to one appearance of Sky Sovereign Council Flagship. So legendary yeah. Skyship Tribal in the sideboard here, which is pretty funny. Next, we have Karn, Scion of Urza. This is an interesting one. Steve, you predicted four. I predicted three. The actual was 15. Who? 15, 10 of which were main deck, five in the side, one in both. So, is this, Does it break down by paper and online? Uh, I could do that, but I don't have those stats in front of me right now. But as we saw, Karn was fairly popular in various builds. Now, some of it was due to creative goals, but in the Team VSL, we saw a number of appearances of Karn in certain decks. Certainly. And Rachel played one on turn one against me in our match, and I had to force it because that Karn was going to be a real problem if it stayed in Mm -hmm. place from turn one, creating card advantage. And I really don't know what to make of this 15, except that Karn was very popular. I genuinely can't tell if it's a long-term player still. What do you think? I think think what it suggests is that blue decks are enjoying Karn. Mm Mm-hmm. And that you have a diverse, diversity enough strategy, uh, enough of strategies that it's, there's likely some amount of that is people experimenting. Um, it's the kind of card that even if it's not optimal, it's, it's usually going to produce a positive enough effect that it will disguise its suboptimality. <laughs> so the most recent appearance of Karn is from June 17, and that was sixth place in the, the Magic Online Challenge. But a week before that, was a paper event, third place at a paper event out of 35 players in Australia. And it alternates like that. Vintage Challenge had one the first week in June, but there was one down in Texas where John Hammock played it in the Lone Star Lurgoyf's proxy event. And there's other there's other paper events mixed in with the Vintage Challenges. So I think it's a healthy mixture of paper play versus on, on, online play. And it also looks like it's a healthy mixture of workshops and blue decks too right just as i surmised yeah so the card is very flexible and has a certain power level to it and i've faced it in a couple of different contexts and every time i have it's been it's been a serious threat that needed to be addressed karn's ability to provide card advantage when needed and provide threats when needed is is a little bit unprecedented in vintage playable planeswalkers i think the closest analogy in terms of creating threats might be Tezzeret the Seeker, but that's a different kind of threat, right? A very different kind. Oh, are you still there? I'm here. Oh, okay, sorry. Anything more on Karn? Okay, next we have Joyra's Familiar. <laughs> Another interesting one. Steve, you predicted eight. I predicted 12. The actual was zero. Mm. Zero Joyra's Familiar. You and I were very excited about the notion of how workshop decks had been pushing, pushing lower to the ground. Mana efficiency was the the standard that pushed the decks down toward um, Steel Overseer, especially for the Mirror. And you and I thought at the time that Joy was Familiar fit that bill, that it wouldn't necessarily be a four of, but that the decks that had access to one or two of these would have just that much more advantage in the Mirror. 
and it turned out that everyone wanted Karn and no one wanted Joyra's familiar. <laughs> Makes me wonder. <laughs> well, it's it's not the same, but it's a similar concept to the Treasure Cruise versus Dig Through Time debacle that happened, yeah. right? When they were printed in the same set. It makes me wonder if <laughs> Joyra's Familiar would have gotten a little more play if Karn hadn't been in the same set or if Weatherlight hadn't been in the same set. I actually think it was the metagame shift. I mean, we assumed a static metagame. Mm-hmm. You know, not saying that Joyra's Familiar would have seen play, re, you know, six months ago, but the shift uh, towards uh, aiming the fire to to paradoxical outcome meant that there was a, a noticeable um, de-emphasis on this low to the ground strategy. Mm-hmm. So. Joyous Familiar probably suffered a bit from that, if it was even playable to begin with. We might have just been wildly overly op- wildly over-optimistic. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of factors going on, and you and I were maybe too focused on that one. So I take your meaning there. But also, uh, Shop's just got a lot of tools, right? We've reviewed Voltaic Servant, Weatherlight, Karn, Joyra, and we're coming up on Traxos. That's a lot of cards that Shop's had to do potentially integrate into its possibilities. Trax- Traxos was by far the card I was most excited about in workshops. Yeah, I mean, m- absolutely. My, my predictions were Karn 4, Jorah's Familiar 8, and Traxos 13, just so folks get a relative sense of sense of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I and Joyra's Familiar was the one that I predicted the most of, and I think I was, well, it's pretty clear that I was definitely over-enamored with the effect on the mana base of the deck. But let's talk about Traxos then. Steve, you predicted 13. I predicted seven. The actual was ten. Spot on in the middle between the two of us. <laughs> That's not fair. It just seems wrong <laughs> I know, right? somehow. We need a winner and a loser. Come on. Uh, no, so our it's out of all the things we got right and wrong here, Traxos was the one right in the middle. I right? guess. What, I we, guess what that's saying is they need both of us to accurately predict this. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to bring in a third member of the show so we can really triangulate onto the the reality of things. <laughs> well, the, the, a, th- a triangulation here wouldn't have gotten us any closer. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So, so we were pretty close on Traxos here. The 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 if card you take has the average been Menendian and Crone. You were dead on. <laughs> yeah, the card has been pretty popular and showed up even in the top eight at SCG Con. And I think Traxos is here to stay. It's you know it's a it's a role player. It's a one or a two of, but it's just so potent that I think it has a, a lot of long term potential in the deck. Agreed. Now we have one other card to t- discuss here, and I alluded to it earlier. Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, is one that we did not review. If I could just say something about that, uh, I would just mm-hmm. remind everyone, and we did get requests for it after the fact that we. We take our cue from you. That doesn't mean we can't identify cards in advance as well. <laughs> but uh, we are a a radio station that takes songs upon request <laughs> 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 because we want to, you know, we want to follow what you're interested in. So um, mm-hmm. for those who did request to ferry um, after the fact, weeks after the fact, just a reminder to bring these to our attention in advance, and we'll be happy to review them for you. And I do think that our audience has gotten that message because we did get a greater number of requests for the core set here. It could be that the core set has more fun cards, but I'm going to take the the simple baseline reading, which is that people are getting this message and requesting a lot. So Teferi, we did not predict, but the actual was eight appearances, nice, which is pretty strong. It makes Teferi the fourth most played card in the set. <laughs> And That's pretty good. I mean, the fact that yeah. there are four cards that see substantial play from a set suggests, in the vintage format, suggests the set is pretty pretty strong, pretty good. And yep. to review that list, first place is Karn with 15 appearances, 
Tied for second is Damping Sphere and Traxos with 10 each, Teferi in fourth with 8, Voltaic Servant in fifth with 2. Which you may or may not count. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, overall, a strong appearance for Dominaria, really. I mean, having multiple cards, three different cards in double digits, that's a really powerful impact on Vintage from a single set. Well, let's let's spend just a moment before we go to the next, our, our, our set review, on Teferi in particular. So, mm-hmm. um, Kevin, do you have a theory as to how this, uh, this worked? Well, Teferi has a lot of features that really attract uh, blue-based control players. And the fact that it's blue-white means that it already fit into what was the, the dominant color combination for control and vintage. Right. Factor that in with Teferi has great synergy with a couple of cards that the community really historically loves, and that is Mana Drain and Library of Alexandria. Factor that with the fact that it has great synergy if you can get it going with Search for Azkanto, which a number of players are really excited to um, to try and make work. And you just get this, I think nice intersection of things people want to do normally which is draw cards in vintage things that make other restricted cards or other good vintage cards even better and then there's one other factor that i might have even missed if i had been tasked to review to fairy beforehand and that is the versatility of his removal yes so I tested Teferi, this is way after we did our set review, but I tested Teferi going into one recent vintage tournament about two months ago, and the first time I cast Teferi and buried my opponent's Jace the Mind Sculptor, I realized that there was something special going on here. (laughs) The the simple flexibility of Teferi being able to hit any non-land card is is really valuable in a vintage format where resources are stretched so thin and the removal is asked to... um, is asked to play so many roles. I think that that I would have underestimated the value of the untapping lands, given mm-hmm. that we're in this era of most, the vast majority of counter magic being alternative casting cost. Um, I think I would have underestimated just how valuable it is to have two lands untapped. Um, and the combination of drawing cards and untapping land is very unique. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't get that a lot. And I think... Part of the value of that is, number one, it means that you can play, obviously, Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, uh, Removal, Bolt, and Swords, or a combination thereof. But it also means that you can play with Snapcaster Mage, you know, with the Mm -hmm. the two mana and Mana Drain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if this card had said, I don't know, draw two cards, put one on top of your library, I think it would have been likely worse than, than, than what you get here. Um, because the, the untapping of the two lands is, is, is a, it's not just that it's utility, it's that it creates a defense mechanism that effectively undercuts the full mana cost of the card, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can protect it once it resolves much better. Because if mm-hmm. your opponent tries to play an end step creature, you can bolt or plow it. Um, you know, if they try and come at you somehow, you can try and use your counter magic. So I think the card is really an interesting, um, kind of s- interaction of defense and card advantage in a way that is is it, at least is, is its top line ability easy to underestimate. But I, I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the second ability being so versatile makes this puts this card kind of over the top. The fact that immediately on the table, once you get this into play, you have basically you get to do two good things or one really urgent thing. And then you, you know what I mean? That's situationally optimal makes this card, I mean, it gives it an edge over things like Jace 
the Mind Sculptor, which is just kind of like the, you know, the foundation baseline benchmark for um, Planeswalkers and the format. Mm-hmm. And I think we might have said this if we had removed the card in full, but the fact that Vintage has pushed the efficiency of its interactive spells in blue-white based control decks so low means that untapping two lands is it's effectively like untapping for the turn when it comes to trying to interact with your opponent realistically because so many of the counter spells are free you could cast those anyway but so many of the key interactive spells which you just listed are only one mana right it's totally reasonable to cast a fairy a five mana spell and still expect on your opponent's turn to be able to interact with them in three to four ways right Uh, uh, swords and a bolt a fluster storm and a pyroblast combined with the other free cards or just like a snapcaster on a misstep right you've got access to most i would say a very high percentage of your interactive spells at that point and so it seems potentially innocuous maybe even like a tack on hey control players like untapping their lands let's throw this on here but in the vintage context it really actually allows you to interact meaningfully in multiple ways so i think one of the lessons from this set at least from the perspective of reviewers is take the under and you'll usually be right. <laughs> but that's funny, but it's actually unfair in a sense because um, I think we, we correctly identified the cards that would see play. We were obviously the weather light. We were, we were off on and joyous familiar. We overestimated, but I mean, we we're basically 80, 90% correct. And um, the actual numbers were, well, were very well within range. So, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the four, the two four mana spells for workshops we kind of flipped our our accuracy on Karn and Joyra's familiar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely flipped our accuracy there, but that was not only due to workshops, of course. So let's see how we do with the core set 2019. Kevin, I just have one question before we get underway here is, can wizards make up their mind about the value of a core set? <laughs> it's a really interesting topic. Go on. <laughs> well, it just seems like every few years they say we're doing away with the core set, and then a few years later they bring it back. You know, make up your mind. <laughs> is the core set foundational to magic? Does it matter? Or is it, you know, does it... And, and I, I think the really remarkable example of that was... Um, was it Magic Magic M10, mm-hmm. Magic 2010, where they kind of completely redesigned the set and they brought a remarkable number of cards, you know, top down into the into Magic. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we got was a preordain and some other cool stuff. Yep. Um, and then they're like, oh, we're doing away with it. We're gonna put some cool blocks there instead. And like, oh, it's coming back. You know, it just <laughs> it would be nice if there was some consistency with respect to that. Well, I'm with you. I I don't I don't care too much. For my personally and even for the health of the game, actually, I don't care too much about the stock that's put into a set being four new players, particularly. I recognize that there is value in doing that. I don't want magic to fail. But if you tell me that this set's for, for new players, I'm just going to say, okay, and take your word for it. <laughs> because <laughs> this set, while it does have a lot of basics in the common and uncommon slot, 
The rares and mythics in this set are some of the most complex and narrow and confusing and powerful things that we've ever seen. I mean, we have a creature that flips into a planeswalker in the core set. Right, right. <laughs> that's like the, the, the antithesis yeah. of four new players. Now, I get that's a mythic and they're, you know, the new players aren't going to encounter mythics as often, but still, uh, this set is kind of all over the board. You've got really narrow hosers, you've got bizarre sideboard cards, you've got super powerful effects. It's just all over the place. <laughs> hmm. And so I don't put much stock into what is a core set for anymore because I've completely lost the plot. Um, <laughs> That's and, fair. I mean, there's so many different avenues by which yeah. they can produce magic cards for different sets that the core set, you know, back in the day, the core set was like the definition of what magic was, right? Yeah. It was the, you know, like fourth edition comes out. So does a new set of rules. And so does, you know, a kind of redefinition of what the, a kind of a, a core, um, uh, environment and uh, set constellation of cards should be in a basically a standard format, mm-hmm. um, but it, it it has to mean something, right? I mean, the core set is different than an expansion set. It doesn't have its own thematics. It has to be broad and general enough to encompass a wide variety of themes, uh, fantasy themes, and quote resonant flavor, as well as non narrow keyword mechanics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like they put like storm new storm cards, I guess, into the core set. So there are messages here. I don't know what they are. I don't know how we decode them, <laughs> but we have to make sense of that. It is of note, for ex- for example, that like Millstone is back. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if Millstone ever went away, but it certainly struck me that oh, that's cool. That's here. You know. Anyway, yeah, the well, Millstone kind of harkens to Icy Manipulator in Dominaria, right? Right. It's right. definitely a throwback that is a, kind of a plant for older players to be nostalgic about. But it's also relevant, and they made it uncommon, so it's it's more relevant for limited play than ever before. Yeah, according to to this, the last time it was in a course that was M14, and then before that, tenth uh, edition. So yeah, and there are, but you made a good point about some mechanics, right? This set doesn't have new keyword mechanics, but it still has just incredible amounts of both literal and like strategic complexity that are baked into some of these cards. Like the card, we're going to review Infernal Reckoning, which exiles colorless creatures. That's like, that's a plant for specific things, namely Eldrazi, right? Yeah. But it's also, but there are no Eldrazi in this set, right? Right. So it's kind of a head scratcher for a new player. Like, how does this, (laughs) why would you, why would you differentiate between a colorless creature and an artifact creature when there are other cards that interact specifically with artifacts? So that's the kind of thing that, that causes me to just kind of throw my hands up in the air and say, hey, you know what? You can call whatever you want a core set. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. It doesn't have a new keyword. That's great. <laughs> it's still just riddled with complexity. Just it's all over the map. So first up, we have Remorseful Cleric. This is a creature, Spirit Cleric, for 1W, Flying, Sacrifice Remorseful Cleric, colon, Exile All Cards from Target Player's Graveyard, 2-1. Tormod's Crypt, Hate Bear, Flying. Yep, Flying. So Without a tap, let's, by the let's, way. 
So, I know. You can use it the turn it comes in. So let's do some baseline stuff. Is 1W a playable... Can, not only that, but you can use it while it's tapped. So <laughs> Yep. 1W, is that a playable mana cost in Vintage? Most naturally. definitely. Yep. There are several other creatures specifically at this mana cost, but also many other spells. So it's eminently playable from a mana cost standpoint. Uh, we've talked about the definition of a quote-unquote bear before. A two-power creature with some relevant ability is, is gets lumped in, as you said, as like a hate bear. So a 2-1 flyer is meets that mold. It's the sort of creature that can be a threat while threatening some other disruptive element. But I'm, I must say that paying 2 mana for my Tormod's Crypt seems highly unattractive, especially when for 2 mana I could be getting a lot more impactful cards against Dredge. Namely, say, Containment Priest, Yixla Jailer, or Rest in Peace. Hold, hold, the, hold the press for a second. Yeah. We just had a whole conversation about how containment priest isn't cutting cutting it anymore, and now that's true. <laughs> you're talking about getting more juice out of containment priest. <laughs> I, I, um, like, I, I, if getting if more, you were going to okay, say so two mana, uh, let me I would, let me qualify that though, because you get more out of containment priest because you can bring it in against oath. That's all. I see your point. Your point is well made though. This card might be better against the latest incarnation of dredge <laughs> than priest. There we did. go. I. Now, if you were yep. going to say you don't get enough juice compared to this mana cost compared to rest in peace, then I, I, I'm on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. This, this, uh, so I'm just going to spit, spitball a couple things. Number one, I like the fact that you can play this off in, in White Eldrazi and get an aggressive aggro element, um, that, that has evasion nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. and you can, and other decks, spirits, hate bears, it also helps that it's uncounterable when you play it off of a um, cavern of souls. So um, I think this card is definitely playable. I think this is the kind of card that if you are one of those players who wants a kind of complete uh, uh, card file of vintage playables, so that when Eternal Weekend or t- uh, Weekend Tournament comes up, you want to be able to open it up and have all your deck building elements before you. Uh, this is the kind of card I think you should pick up. Mm-hmm. I would describe it, as you said, as tournament playable, vintage playable, I mean. I'm not excited about it, though, right? Especially in light of what we had discussed earlier about Dredge. If I'm picking cards that are... I mean, this is specifically for Dredge, right? Yeah. It's the sort of card that, yeah, you might bring it in if you had too many dead cards in your main for some other matchup, like a grindy blue matchup as you sometimes do with Containment Priest. And you might bring it in against shops just to have a warm body, again, if you have too many dead cards. But I'm not excited about this. I mean, I don't love Tormod's Crypts right now against Dredge. I only like them in decks that are quite fast. Like, I think it's a Crypt is still a good sideboard card in Paradoxical Outcome, for example. I'm never going to choose this over Crypt in a deck that's currently playing Crypt, right? And I'm, I don't think I'm going to choose this over Rest in Peace in a Jeskai deck so I really I w- feel like you, zo- you zoned in on the only home in my eyes, which is White Eldrazi. Okay. I would probably play this over Rest in Peace and a White Eldrazi sideboard, simply because mm-hmm. the Cavern of Souls makes this much more castable. Sure. But White Eldrazi already has a diversity of ways to handle Dredge, and so this is just kind of filling another role in that matchup. But for but as you and I well know, White Eldrazi is definitely on the decline right now. It's not a common deck. For all the more common decks, that have access to white mana, I don't think they want this combination of cost and effect. Yeah, it's hard to think of another... I mean, I think in a white hate bears deck, it certainly could fit in. There's no question there. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, especially if Definitely you're playing with could. like Stony Silence and Null Rods. Um, 
there, I know there are other white spells out there. I think there's even a sorcery that does what Tormod's Crypt does. But yeah. I, I just really like this creature. I mean, a two-one flyer for two mana is is um, easy to underestimate. How does that compare though to Containment Priest? For well, you? I think are you talking about in Dredge matchups specifically, or in other? Well, contexts? what's interesting is that Containment Priest has a, a form of inva- evasion, which is by having mm-hmm. flash, you can flash it into play, plop it into play for the specific purpose of attacking into a planeswalker. Um, mm-hmm. Now, evasion does matter because if your opponent has a you know a snapcaster, a snapcaster. in play, for example, mm-hmm. exactly right, you can get this over the Snapcaster and attack into the Planeswalker. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like this card a lot. I think it has a lot of value. I mean, there are enough cards in the format that that you draw upon the graveyard in one form or another that you could see this having enough utility. You could imagine it's shutting down a Crucible recursion in one matchup, or um, mm-hmm. or Dredge in another, or you know, Yawgmoth's Will in yet, a, yet another. So, um, I, I, I see this... You know, I with Thalia in play... You know, if your opponent is going the uh, life from the loam route, this is this is the the solution you need. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say, what's your prediction then? Because I do consider this to be playable, but the places where it's going to see play are think I think are the the small corners of the metagame. Yeah. Well, number one, in order to play it, you need to have a deck that has full moxen. So you're not going to be playing mm-hmm. this in a deck that skimps on full moxen, or it has to use a lot of spirit guides to support it. So I think it basically is down to uh, blue-white control decks like Teferi-type decks. Um, possibly, I think, land, does Landstill uses Rest in Peace quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's probably not going to be in Landstill. It'll definitely be in Hate Bears and White Eldrazi, and probably not much besides then. So it, if that's right, then it comes down to how many White Eldrazi will be in our next three months of top eights, right? That's the fundamental question then. I think you're probably right, and I'm not optimistic about that number being very high. <laughs> well, it's not zero. <laughs> there, there, I mean, there was an Eldrazi in the challenge just this past weekend, so that's a thing because that was, yeah, that was a, a pretty pretty typical Thalia Eldrazi list. So it could have been in a home there. What was the hate that was played in that deck? Well, let's see: four main deck containment priests, and in the sideboard, three cage, a needle. That's basically what that deck has against Dredge, in addition to standard disruptive elements like Wasteland. I like this over Cage. It's relevant. It's relevant. And then there hasn't been another large-scale Eldrazi, or I should say Thalia, appearance until a month and a half ago. Early June, there was another Eldrazi in the in the challenge. Top 8, I should say. And then before that, late May, there was one at LCV. And before that, it was, May, it was uh, April. So... Eldrazi has shown up occasionally in challenge top eights. Three since April, it looks like. So to that metric, if you're confident this card has a place in Eldrazi, then it sounds like it'll put up two or three appearances. I'll go with that. I feel comfortable around that range. I'm I'm taking the under. I I just don't think it's great, but I do think it's playable. I think I'm going to go with one. All right, I'll take two. Okay. Next up is Mistcaller. We're going to have a lot of similar comments about this one. Creature, wizard, merfolk, for one... No, sorry. For you, sacrifice mistcaller, colon. Until end of turn, if a non-token creature would enter the battlefield and it was not cast, exile it instead. One, one. So we've got an activated ability with the effect of containment priest on a one-mana merfolk wizard. 
Now we know, okay, the, the, obviously the mana cost is, is totally reasonable. Unfortunately, you open yourself up to misstep, but still, we do that kind of thing in Vintage. And we know that the Containment Priest effect is wildly popular, right? So a lot of the factors involved here are definitely pointing toward playability. But there's a huge drawback, and that is that this is only use. for one turn. Mm-hmm. And a 1-1 blue creature is otherwise not fitting into a deck that's going to make great use out of that one turn you get, right? If we were talking about a, a combo deck or some such, then yeah, maybe that one turn's enough to win you the game. But the sort of places where Containment Priest finds its home are slower controlling decks, trying to get value out of the fact that Containment Priest is a permanent effect and must be answered in order for Oath or Dredge to do their thing or for Tinker to really work. The Mistcaller can stop Oath for one turn. An Oath activation, yeah. It's slightly better than that against Dredge because it's a creature that you're sacrificing. It gets rid of Bridges just by virtue of activating its ability, and also slows them down by a turn. So it's actually slightly better than a one-shot effect against Dredge because of its effect with Bridges. But otherwise, it's still just delaying the inevitable. It doesn't doesn't even remove anything of theirs. It just leaves all their tools there, Bizarre and Cards in Graveyard, This is to functionally a, a stifle. Next turn. <laughs> yeah, it's more like a, kind of like a mass stifle yeah. against Dredge, I would say. <laughs> right? It's stifling multiple things for a turn. And it, in the case, you're right, in the case of Oath, it's just kind of one stifle. It counters a Tinker for Colossus, full on, but who's going to cast that with this in play? Well, I take that back. You're forced to not get Colossus, effectively. So you could still Tinker for Time Vault and win the game that way. Tinker for Jar in a draw seven deck. I really think this effect, while noteworthy, is just not good enough. We need stronger answers than this in Vintage. Me too. I'm going to go with zero. Okay, next. Psy, Master Thopterist, is a legendary creature, human artificer, for two U. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, we're off to a good start, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. 1-U colon, I'm sorry, comma, sacrifice two artifacts, colon, draw a card. And he's 1-4. There is a lot going on here. This is one of those examples of complex cards in a core set, right? So, not that we couldn't have said that about Mistcaller, but let's let's tap top to bottom here. Three mana for a, a blue creature. Not unprecedented. We've talked about uh, Spellseeker in the last episode. Trinket Mage compared to that. There's not a lot right now that C play at this mana cost, but there have been over time. And I think, yeah, I think that this mana cost is still very reasonable, especially given that there are commonly played spells that are harder to cast than this, like Dak Faden, Chase the Mind Sculptor, Teferi, that kind of thing. So this mana cost is reasonable. This effect is, in my opinion, quite potent. The the phrase, whenever you (laughs) cast an artifact spell, is just music to some vintage player's ears, right? right? <laughs> this has lots of applications. Got- there is one specific application that I immediately thought of when I saw this, but I don't want to jump well, to that conclusion is, just yet. Well, it is horizontal growth from casting a spell. It's mm-hmm. it's got that it's got that built in, which is really nice. And then it has a, a backup engine baked into it, which is that you can turn that growth into card advantage mm-hmm. for a very small cost. So that's pretty powerful, actually. This is a very attractive card. The the question with this card is how many artifacts do you need to support this? Good question. I don't think a regular base blue deck with just even five Moxin and a Lotus can really get great value out of this. Would suffice, but it doesn't take much to get beyond that. Right? Good example might be Sensei's Divining Top. Fair. This well. card plays very well with Sensei's Divining Top, and that card by itself, you know, can guarantee you an artifact drop every turn and that adds up quickly but obviously there is a home for this deck that is just tailor-made and that is outcome 
Today's Modern Outcome deck has plenty of artifacts to fuel this, and this gives that deck a win condition that is orthogonal to its current win condition, so it's harder to... It it can circumvent certain hate cards, right? And also, my favorite thing about this card is it gives you something to do in your outcome deck when there's Null Rod in play. Assuming you have the mana in play, you can draw a lot of cards with this and create a defense. And Well, I'm not going to draw cards if there's Null Rod in play. Well, why w- <laughs> I'm just going to play artifacts and kill yes, them with my Yes, but you can also pay two mana to sacrifice your useless artifacts. Your mana rocks, <laughs> yes, they can't do anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So this, you're right, this helps you in those Null Rod games if you're an outcome player in two different ways, both of which are going to put your opponent behind the eight ball, right? You're creating threats and you're getting card advantage out of otherwise useless artifacts, as you said, both of which are good ways to get you out from under the Null Rod, which is otherwise really challenging to deal with. Also, this card just happens to have great synergy with other things that look for artifacts. Look no further than Talarian Academy, right? Every time you play an artifact, you get two, thereby effectively doubling the mana of any mox that would be contributing to Academy already, right? If you've got Academy in play and you play a mox, you just gained three mana every time. That's fantastic. You could conceivably play Psy here on turn one of an outcome matchup, especially one where you're expecting Null Rod or Stony Silence, and then your opponent is really in a tough place. I mean, you think Comball is a clock, <laughs> but this card could add up fast. You could conceivably play this and even one more artifact on your first turn. Next turn, play one or two more. You've got three or four power on the field. Even if they do play Null Rod, they're still on like a three or three or four turn clock. I think the key to this card is that it sits, it's situated in a very important niche. And that is, as you said, Kevin, it, there's an, it's, it's a unique angle of attack, but it's also a very important defensive measure. It allows you to survive, uh, you know, even if you don't have a paradoxical outcome, and right. even if there's a null rod and or spheres and or stony silence in play, which is something that this deck is really desperate for. You know, you don't need to find the fragmentized to win if you just find this. And it's you know, the mentor does a similar thing, but this does it's it's almost better than mentor number two because it does it in a different way. You get to draw at the same time, and it's not vulnerable to lightning bolt. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very mm-hmm. unique and I think effective card. So I think that the problem is the range, the potential range for this is where it actually ends up is so large. I mean, the ceiling could be like 20 cards, right? I mean, you could imagine this not just appearing in Paradoxical Outcome decks, but appearing in Grixis or appearing in some other blue deck. And then even like seeing an emergence of some heavy, uh, uh, artifact decks with the splash of blue that could use this. Um, on the other hand, you know, there aren't a lot of Campbells out there, right? I mean, you just looked at Campbells, and how many were there? Uh, it's not very many. It's 10 or less. Right. So, and almost all those are in sideboards of yeah. of, of these PO decks. So, what do you think? What's your prediction? I think this card is analogous to Comball and where the outcome decks will, how they will treat it, how they will view it. But as you just described, it's much more versatile than that. It does different things than Comball. You want it in different scenarios, and I think it's more broadly applicable. Comball was kind of designed as a, a, a mirror hoser that also was kind of good against Jeskai decks and forced them to answer it, but but Psy has more applications in more matchups, and it fights more scenarios as you described, so boy, I, it's the sort of thing that I can see main decking one of where you rarely or if ever would right. do that with Comball. So, right. It's I like would, the Arayo slot. <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's good. It's a good comparison, actually. It doesn't do the same thing, but it's like that. So 
I'm inclined to think that it will be on the low end of out of the total count quantity of outcome decks to start with. It might be a slow burn. People might shift to more of these in the long run. Paradoxical outcome itself was a slow burn. That's right. That's but, right. But give me a number. I'm going to go with five because I think the ceiling is higher, as you said, but I think it'll be slow to adopt. Well, instead of demonstrating intellectual courage here, <laughs> I'm going to go with caution and I'm going to take the under, so I'll, I'll go four. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So we have another card here that's going to require a similar kind of conversations, I think. This is Tezzeret Artifice Master. Legendary Planeswalker Tezzeret for three UU. Tezzeret starts with five loyalty and has three abilities as follows. Plus one, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. Zero, draw a card. If you control three or more artifacts, draw two cards instead. And minus nine, you get an emblem with, at the beginning of your end step, search your library for a permanent card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. There's a lot to talk about here, Steve. So a little bit of diligence, I guess, is 3UU uh, playable mana cost for a Planeswalker in Vintage? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Absolutely. We just talked about Teferi in our prior report card, but also Tezzeret has a long history of the Seeker form of seeing play at this mana cost exactly. How do you rank these abilities in terms of the way they interest you? <laughs> <laughs> that's not typically how i uh, evaluate planeswalkers <laughs> no but i'm wondering what your focus is when you read this card because there's a lot of things to grasp to here i find it impossible to resist comparisons to tezzeret the seeker honestly mm -hmm. um i i just uh, it's it's uh, uh almost compulsory and i think the issue that i have is so you've got this trade-off right where this has metalcraft for drawing two cards which is really mm -hmm. powerful. I mean, we don't have a Very. planeswalker that just says that. The closest we get is Jace the Mind Sculptor, which is a brainstorm effect. And you know, when you kick in the card quality, it becomes something approximating that, um, the virtual card advantage. But I think the issue is that you're still trading off the ability of just winning next turn with Time Vault versus this, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that? That's really tricky. And I also think it becomes even more complicated because we, we just discussed this in the context of Teferi, right? Which is that Mm -hmm. Would you rather have something that says draw two cards or something that says draw one card and untap two lands? And I mm -hmm. think in a kind of overall scenario, the latter's kind of better. <laughs> Boy, you said a lot to unpack there, and I think I agree with most of it. Um, it's hard to conceive of a deck that can reliably have Metalcraft and is not interested in Tezzeret the Seeker yep. more. It's hard to conceive of a deck that can draw two cards with this Tezzeret and still wouldn't rather wouldn't trade that for please for time put, get my time oh, ball yeah. <laughs> put, <laughs> put it in play yeah and be a threat to win the game next turn. This Tezzeret, while it could threaten to draw you two more cards next turn and, and four cards is no slouch. This Tezzeret is still slightly less threatening than Tezzeret's the Seeker and also sees you fewer cards than Jace the Mind Sculptor does. And also, there's one other element, too, and that is, while this Tezzeret has three abilities, it really only has, like, 1.2 right. abilities. <laughs> because the ultimate would necessitate you having made four Thopters on the, the preceding four right. turns. Which, there's no just no way you're going to do that. <laughs> there's just no way. The plus on this card is so weak. Yes, it provides defense. Yes, it's an alternate win condition. Yes, you can win through Null Rod. 
but that it's such an agonizing pace, especially as compared to Psy that we just spent so much time discussing. <laughs> so while it seems like this is very powerful, as you put it, I still think that all the other comparison planeswalkers are just better yeah. at what they do. I think that this card actually suffers. You you said this indirectly, and I think mm-hmm. I want to sharpen it. It suffers because its other abilities aren't good enough. You know, like, I mean, Teferi <laughs> yeah. gets an enormous boost from the fact that its other ability is so situationally useful. Whereas this right. plus ability is pretty benign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. We talk about Planeswalkers a lot in Vintage, and one of the things that the, the most common ones have in common is that they each have at least two abilities that are, you know, they frequently have one default mode that's just baseline powerful, Dax plus Jace's Brainstorm, Teferi's plus. Then they have a backup ability, which is situationally way better, Dax minus, Jace's Bounce, Teferi's, uh, Teferi's yeah. minus. Yeah, this one just doesn't have that. Yep. The secondary ability here is just, it just pales in comparison. It's so weak, such as to make it such that if you're just in this to draw two cards a turn, you're actually not getting that much farther ahead because you're so pigeonholed into what you're going to do with this Planeswalker. Now, the zero is attractive, right? If you can manage to get yourself into a situation where you can play this on an empty board or play it such that it's not going to die, five loyalty is respectable. Those four cards, if those four cards that you just got can reliably deal with the board or put you in a position to protect this, well then, sure, this Tezzeret's going to be around for a while, but you're also not building toward anything. Yeah. I don't think we need to spend a significant amount of time more on this. I think the direct comparison to Tezzeret the Seeker combined with the mm-hmm. um, the weakness of its, uh, of its other abilities renders this card relatively uninteresting. It isn't to say that it couldn't see play. You know, somewhere someone mm-hmm. might throw it in, but um, I don't think it's going to see much. Yeah, it, one of the pitfalls that we've had in the past, which I think we have gotten ourselves out of with the last several set reviews, is the difference between playable and will it see play, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you can win games of vintage and you can top eight a tournament with one of the, one or more of these in your deck. Probably only one, but still. Like, it's not a dead card. You play it and draw two if they pyroblast it next turn, or if they just kill it with creatures. Yeah, you drew two cards. It replaced itself pretty well. It's inefficient, but sure, it did it. So I would position this card as playable, but a well-tuned deck that is considering all options and being built toward a large tournament for the purpose of winning is probably going to result in this card being replaced with some other card in the long run. And what that means is, my guess is we're going to see a non-zero of this, but it's going to be a, a vanishingly <laughs> low number. <laughs> so I'm inclined to go one on this Tezzeret because you can never count the community out from playing a brand new Planeswalker, but this one's just not going to have stand the test of time. I also I don't think, think it's, and I'll just add one coda to that, which a coda to that, which is that yep. um, we're no longer in the era where people play cards for focused power. That people want. Mm-hmm flexibility and resilience and adaptability we're in the brian kelly era we're, we're not in the era <laughs> of what's the most powerful card you can play and play it in maximum quantities <laughs> you know this mm-hmm. may in some i mean the irony of this is that it may be the most powerful card drawing planeswalker ever printed in the sense that for five mana yeah. you can get a pretty reliable two you know two draw immediately and then thereafter it's going to be hard to remove it you're going to get the next turn as well but that just doesn't cut it I would not be doing my civic duty if I didn't point to Tamiyo Field Researcher <laughs> as the preferred way to draw two cards a turn. <laughs> but I am on a short list 
granted I'm at the top of that list, but I'm on a short list of people who who really have put energy into playing Tamiyo. <clears throat> so what's your number I'm here for Tezuka? I'm going to go Tezuka? zero. Okay. Yes, I won't be surprised to see this in a in a Brian Kelly, Matt Murray kind of setting. Rich Shea, perhaps, you know. Uh, the streamers and the people who enjoy to explore the nooks and crannies of the format. This is a, a juicy target, but I don't expect to see any in the top eight at Champs this year. Next is Infernal Reckoning, an instant for B. Exile, target, colorless creature. You gain life equal to its power. Eldrazi to plowshare. <laughs> well put. Only you gain the life. So <laughs> this card is really interesting and tricky to evaluate. Okay, it can kill every creature in a workshop deck. Full stop. It for one can black kill mana. most creatures. Yeah, for a single black man. It can kill a lot of creatures in an Eldrazi deck, depending on whether or not it's full on tribal or white Eldrazi. It's not the best against the Eldrazi deck, right? I mean, yes, you you like swords against those decks, but it's it's not it's so narrow that it won't hit the turn one Thalia, and so it's actually going to be kind of a liability against white Eldrazi. But the simple fact remains is this can kill everything in shops, and it will kill the uh the errant uh, blightsteel colossus here and there as well we already have a spell for b at instant speed <laughs> that will pretty much kill everything in shops today and that spell is fatal push and we also have another spell for c and yes. for life that will kill everything in shops and that card is dismember and we already happen to have a card for w that does a much better job at this albeit they gain the life and that's swords to plowshares so is there a deck that is really hurting against the workshop and occasionally Eldrazi matchup that really wants to try and gain this life off of this narrower life gain or uh, removal well, spell. The best use for this is removing a Blightsteel Colossus. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if Cunning Wish, if Cunning Wish were still a thing in Vintage, <laughs> I think you might have a conversation about this card because it's a wicked it's Cunning instant. Wish target yep. against Tinker Colossus. Yeah. Um, but those well, days have I think passed. The, the challenge is that the bug deck is already really good against workshops. Now, maybe... He, and it has a ton of options. Yeah, but here's one of the advantages that I think is worth noting. Um, mm-hmm. All those cards that you just mentioned, they do r- destroy those creatures, but exiling mm-hmm. is not the same as destroying. Exiling mm-hmm. is actually better in the case of h- one hangerback walker. Okay, relevant, highly relevant. Yes. Um, and I think that's a, that is an important case where you're trying to get rid of... You're going to try to get rid of a hangerback walker. I think that's the... Uh, also... It is interesting that um, look how much life you gain when you're hitting the precursor golems. Mm, fantastic! Yes, if your opponent ever shows you an infernal reckoning and you're a workshop player, you might want to take out those precursor <laughs> golems. <laughs> that's an interesting point. That's pretty potent. Yeah, the, the life swing is big in that case. That's pretty huge. Do you think in a median game of say bug or Grixis versus shops that the life gain is actually going to be material? In the median, I wouldn't say the median, but yeah. I would say in the 20th percentile game, yes. Okay. I think that's a reasonable assessment, too. A lot of times, the target of this spell is going to... this. A lot of times, this spell will not resolve due to Arcbound Ravager, right? So that's going to be a significant portion of the time. Less than half, but a significant portion still. And a, another significant portion of the time, you're going to gain one or two life off of this. Because most of your targets, I would say the vast middle of the median of your targets are probably two power. So when you put it in that context, sacrificing the flexibility of your card for the potential to, on average, gain you two life is definitely not worth it, yeah. right? Whereas you get access to Fatal with fatal Push or Dismember, for example. Now, Dismember is a special case, but with Fatal Push, you get access to killing a whole swath of other creatures 
like everything in every other deck with exception of um oh i think the trade-off is just completely unworth it the narrow it seems like a yeah it it seems like a fun benefit on the face but it's just not worth it if fatal push said destroy that creature and you gain two life we still wouldn't be that enamored with fatal push right now right it wouldn't move the needle on that card yeah and this is kind of like that well i I think there's three elements here number one is Mm -hmm. this exiles the creature which Mm -hmm. is relevant number number two you gain life and number three um it's narrow it only hits it's all it's colorless so you have to balance those three factors against each other but it's as efficient just about as it could be uh it's as fast Mm -hmm. as it could be so um Mm -hmm. it has a lot going for it the question is can all of those uh, advantages overcome its narrow scope and i think you're on the (laughs) side of no and i'm not sure i think it really depends on how these x are configured um it's it's hard to say i mean it's hard to say like would the bug fish deck play one of these and do, do they is does fatal push see any play actually is it in any top eights At very little let me verify that these leovold decks <laughs> so in the main decks in the last quarter there has been there have been no top eights by fatal push in the main that had tournaments of greater than 16 players in the sideboard the story is slightly differently there was different i said there was one at lcv there was an oath deck that had fatal push in the sideboard in this month just last weekend and in the intervening months there was one in the challenge there was a fish deck that had fatal push in the sideboard there was one back in may the winning deck which was also a fish deck so Wait, those you, were the um, if four, you recall Steve, color bug? that's right they're, they're listed as fish here on tcd decks but this was that brief period where um this leovold decks won consecutive challenges and they had one fatal push in the sideboard so the short answer is it's vanishingly small. So that, the that top eight for be, fatal that push. That slot could be this card. Yeah, yeah, but well, except what is what's the role of that fatal push in those? Uh, that's decks? the question. I'm not sure. Yes, yeah, yeah, it comes in against shops, but it also is going to come in against other bug decks. It's going to come in against white Eldrazi. It's going to come in against I don't know miscellaneous other decks. Well, this right? is still this know, is Grixis still good thieves. against white Eldrazi. <laughs> I mean, you can hit Thought Not Seer and. Uh, the bigger, the bigger one, Reality Smasher. I, yeah, and you and you can hit the the one that the Displacer because it's devoid. So you can hit all the Eldrazi creatures in that deck. You just can't hit the Thalia that you really want to hit on two. I don't know. I, you make a fair point. That kind of bug deck that has one push in the sideboard. If it's mostly worried about shops and wasn't bringing in Fatal Push against Jeskai, which I totally would support. Except if they had young Pyromancer. If they had Pyromancer, you'd want Fatal Push against them. But I don't know. I just I think this is a zero. I think it's too narrow. I'm not willing to sacrifice the flexibility right. of Fatal Push will, over the. I will take the over. Right. I'll go one. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I would say that if there was a blue black only grindy control deck, yeah. that kind of deck would have issues against yes. shop. If there's like a, a straight blue black land yes. still deck, yes, it would I mean want this, this card. card. This but card as it is- stands. As soon as you go into any of the Naya colors, you get a one-mana removal spell against Shops. It's way better. It's just just great there. Okay. Next, Alpine Moon. It's an enchantment for R. As Alpine Moon enters the battlefield, choose a non-basic land card name. Lands your opponent's control with the chosen card... I'm sorry, with the chosen name. Lose all land types and abilities, and they gain tap to add one mana of any color. So yet another example of incredible (laughs) simplicity for a core set. Right, 
this really bizarre red enchantment that screws with a specific non-basic land. Uh, so what do we have here, Steve? The land, it's not, it has to be non-basic. It loses all types and abilities and becomes a rainbow land. So the first thing you would think of in Vintage is bizarre, right? Yep. This is an anti-dredge card. It functions like Pithing Needle or just Wasteland. But it hits all kinds. It's better that it's like more akin to Pithing Needle because it hits all of them. Or Sorcerer's Spyglass, right? It's in that mold. It also disrupts Wastelands. So if you were a multicolor deck that didn't want to deal with your opponent's Wastelands, it's worth noting that this is not symmetric. It says lands your opponent's control with the chosen name. So you could be a Wasteland deck that gets to Wasteland your opponent, even though you've named Wasteland with Alpine Moon. Similarly, you could be a Bizarre deck that gets to still Bizarre. Unless you name Wasteland. No, that's the thing is it only shuts off your opponent's land. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm with you. It's like Pithing Needle for only them, but it rewards them with a Rainbow Land. Obviously, against workshops, that's going to be uh, irrelevant, right? If you are trying to fight workshops, uh, their wastelands or their factories, the fact that this gives them mana of any color is going to be irrelevant because they could still tap their lands for colorless under a needle anyway. So that's nice. Against Dredge, actually giving them a rainbow land is something of a liability, though. You're giving them access to the mana they need to remove this, which Needle and Spyglass do not do. So I think this is actually kind of bad as, an, as a Dredge hate card, especially in the face of the notion that the things we're comparing it to are colorless. And this is still an enchantment. So unless they're bringing in specifically Ancient Grudge, which this dodges, this still walks right into all the other removal they like. Nature's Claim, Abrupt Decay, Serenity, the popular choices these days. This dodges Ingot Chewer and Ancient Grudge. And I don't consider Ingot Chewer or Ancient Grudge to be the standard these days, despite what we said about the, the fun Channel Fireball dredge deck with four main deck Ancient Grudges. But even then, I do not want to play an Alpine Moon naming Bazaar of Baghdad against a Life from the Loam deck. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think this card is too high risk. And not good enough. Yep. The best, the best application for this deck is if you're in some kind of mirror match where <laughs> you want to be the one abusing the land and they can't. Right. <laughs> if it was a dredge mirror and you had access to red, you could play this name Bazaar, slow them down, and keep going. It seems like one of the best use cases. Similarly, if you were like a red-based shop deck, if you were like an eight moon deck and you wanted to screw with your opponent's mana in some way, but Blood Moon does that better than this anyway. It certainly doesn't disrupt it as much as Damping Sphere does. Right. Yeah, I don't think this card has a home. I don't think it does the right thing, and I don't think there's a deck that has red that's looking for this effect that doesn't already have access to it. I would like to see the design notes for this card. What were they aiming at? Because it's just not clear to me. I think they were aiming at Modern. I think they were trying to to mess with Tron in Modern. Ugh. Yeah. Huh. All right. So zeros for you? Yep. Okay. Let's talk about Amulet of Safekeeping, an artifact for two. Whenever you become the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell or ability unless its controller pays one, period. Creature tokens get minus zero, minus one, period. I think you got that backwards. <laughs> Didn't we just review this card? Wasn't it called Damping Sphere? No, no, no. no. It's creature tokens get minus one, minus zero. Oh, did I say the wrong thing? Minus one, (laughs) minus zero. Sorry. It doesn't kill them. It makes them weaker. I apologize. So this is so bizarre on the heels of Damping Sphere, right? Another two mana artifact that some for some reason hoses Storm and then something else. Completely unrelated to Storm. (laughs) I suppose in the case of... um, (laughs) I suppose in the case of 
goblin warrens. What's that card called? The four mana sorcery that makes goblins. Empty, empty the so warrens, yeah. I suppose in the case of empty the warrens, this actually fights it on both axes. But still. Sure. <laughs> the, this is a, a storm hoser such that it force spikes all the storm copies of tendrils. It specifically hoses tendrils, right? It doesn't, doesn't hose yeah. mind's desire. And it also hoses young pyromancer and monastery mentor and hangerback walker. Well, hold on a second. There's an interesting rules wrinkle here. Does this really hose tendrils? Doesn't it just hose the original copy and not the copies? No. It specifically does hose the copies because they all target you. I think what you're thinking of... Yeah, but it says whenever you become the yeah. target. The target is announced in the first instance. Um, you, you still have to so, choose a target for each copy. I think oh, what okay. you're thinking so of is the every- phrase, um, whenever your opponent casts a spell. Because oh, that's right. in the case of yeah. tendrils or any other storm card, they only cast the first one. So if this right. had said whenever your opponent casts a spell that targets you, you would be correct. It would not apply to the copies. But this only triggers off of becoming the target. And I think that was by design. I think that was intentionally because it specifically holds storms. So when storms. I first read this, got it. When I first read this card, the immediate point of comparison, I was calling this Amulet of Weakness <laughs> because it's the opposite of the, the, the Amulet of the Gauntlet of Might. Um, it's, you know, the creatures get minus one instead of powered up. And while it doesn't take away mana, it kind of does. Well, it does take yeah. away mana in a sense. <laughs> it, it it it's kind of the opposite of uh, um, Helm of Awakening. Yeah. You know, I guess Stone Calendar is the better <laughs> uh, example of that era. Um, so, I mean, the most obvious thing that this r- reminds me of is the, it's the anti-Sly card, yeah, rather than anti-Storm card. Right. But Sly isn't exactly a thing <laughs> right now. So no, not at all. Um, yeah, um, and. It's like there are some lightning bolts around, but it's not like we're in a format like it used to be where people played like four lightning bolt and four incinerate Mm -hmm. and four chain lightning. So So what targets a player in vintage? Note that this says um, spell or ability. Well, well, what's interesting is that the the cars that used to... So there are a number of things. Duress effects, Thoughtseize Duress, Mm -hmm. um, Gataxian Probe. Now there's unusual things that target, like Gifts Ungiven Mm -hmm. targets, Oath of Druids target. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, thought not seer. I was just about to say thought not seer. Yep. Um, Hercules recall. Hercules. Yeah. Anything that you would play a ley line of sanctity for. <laughs> Jace the mind sculptor's plus ability does. Right. And then bolt. And that's pretty much the main set of cards. Yeah. There's some more niche stuff like Vendillion click. Um, sure. But re- realistically, though, there's nothing. I mean, the incidental value of adding a force spike to any of those things is not worth a card except for Agreed. tendrils right tendrils is the only thing in here where it's actually worth having that effect um it seems like this card is inferior to at fighting storm to regular old spheres or chalice or damping sphere right do you get any mileage out of the creature tokens business then well it's it does shut down empty the warrens and young pyromancer tokens which matters mm-hmm. i suppose it also shuts down the kind of the the death right targeting you ability um i don't think that's i'm going to double check but that's not the way death rights really at the moment okay it targets the cards in the graveyard so for reference death rights activated abilities the first one says exile target land card from a graveyard the second one says exile target instant or sorcery card from a graveyard. graveyard yeah yeah, the third is exile target creature, and the the effect on the opponent is not targeted. Gotcha. It says each opponent loses two life, so no effect to death right. Well, in that case, I don't think this is good enough. I mean, if you're going to be if you, mm-hmm. if you were going to be playing an effect like this, you could be you could be playing 
I mean, there are other things that can prevent the tendrils from targeting you that are just as good, if not have broader application, right? Right. I mean, you could play stifle, and damping for example. Is, <laughs> well, it's true. But Damping Sphere, I think, is a more impactful card to the Storm decks, too, because it, it impacts them prior to yes. the, the actual turn, yeah. right? It disrupts them beforehand. This does nothing. Well, I take that back. This actually disrupts, as you said, disrupts, duresses in Thoughtseize. But that's so minor. It's just I can't imagine it being good Does enough. it stop the Charbelcher like activation? Yep, that would target you. <laughs> but it doesn't again, it doesn't yeah. stop it. It just Disrupts makes it cost it. one more. Yeah. So it's, pr- I mean, <laughs> ironically, that's still a pretty big effect in the case of Charbelcher because those decks are so lean on mana <laughs> that it could relevantly slow them down by a couple of turns right? until they can get, find one more source of mana. But even then, that's that's probably not good enough. I'd- I find the, the effect this has in Oath is interesting because it removes the power from the spirit tokens you give them. So it's it's actually really good for a deck that's using uh, Forbidden Orchard. Yeah. I, Whether that's worth a card, Well, the again, Oath pilot would have to just pay an additional mana every time they want to Oath. That's it. Uh, no, no, I mean playing it in I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Oh. But I was give- No. It, it's not... Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't cause them to have to play mana for their own Oaths. No. It, because, but I'm saying if you're playing it against Oath... I understood what your point was, but... Right. but okay. If you're playing against Oath, they it's pretty easy to circumnavigate. Yes. I don't think it's disruptive at all, really. They would gladly pay one mana to activate Oath of Druids, given that that effect is under-costed by about five mana. I think it's a mana. cool card, but uh, <laughs> since we've got so many cards to review, I'm I'm comfortable going on record predicting zero appearances. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I just don't think this is powerful enough or impactful enough. Next up, Meteor Golem. Artifact Creature Golem. The mana cost is seven. When Meteor Golem enters the battlefield, destroy target non-land permanent and opponent controls. And it's 3-3. So, remind me what the other... There's another big artifact from, I think it was Scars of Mirrodin that does something like this. What was that card called again? Yeah, I think I think you're referring to Spine exactly. of Ishsa. Much cooler name than this card. Which is also yeah. 7 mana. Yep. It comes in and destroys target permanent, and when it's put in the graveyard, you return it to your hand. That's Spine of Ishsa. Yes, this is very re- uh, reminiscent of Spine of Ishsa. And Spine actually saw a little certainly. play back in the, the Welder days, yep. right? Having something that versatile is is useful despite the enormity of the cost. Um, seven mana is outside the range of decks that want to play spells that don't just win the game. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see any reason that this would be different. I think this is probably inferior to Spine of Saw, despite the marginal power you get with it. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. I think you're probably right. The the having a three three body attached is not nearly as cool as the fact that Spine of Ishsock can hit a land, and also Spine has other random upside. Goes back to your hand, and you want to know something cool? There has been a top eight by Spine of Ishsock this year. <laughs> it was back in March. It was a fifteen person tournament in Ferenz, but it has happened. <laughs> so that I mean that bar is pretty low, though. <laughs> I. I I can't imagine this card being put into any modern workshop deck just for the purposes of value. Yes, it does destroy an Oath of Druid, but due to the presence of Spine of Ishsa, those decks have had access to that effect all along and never done it. (laughs) I don't view this as an Oath target, and if you wanted that, you would have something far more potent like um, Ashen Rider, for example, and as such, the same goes for Dredge. Yeah, that's right. So it's not like you you wouldn't play this in a welder deck over spine, then you wouldn't play it in a dredge deck over ashen rider. And right. Yeah, same with oath. Same with oath. 
I also have a thematic objection to this card. It's a meteor golem. It's a meteor, right? Well, meteors are supposed to destroy uh-huh. land, but it can't target not it, it can't target <laughs> land. Are you kidding me? So <laughs> That's a really good point. In fact, the art depicts the golem specifically yeah. destroying land. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think all of those factors combined, specifically the flavor fail, mean that this is just right. not playable in vintage. <laughs> Next up, let's talk about a fun one. Nickel Bolas, the Ravager. Dig in, because Nickel Bolas the Ravager is a legendary creature elder dragon, as you can imagine. And the mana cost is one plus a Grixis, right? One. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> one blue, black, red. Okay, Nicobolas is a creature with flying. When Nicobolas the Ravager enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card. The following activated ability begins with four blue-black-red, so seven mana, colon, exile Nicobolas, comma, the Ravager, comma, then return him to the battlefield, transformed under his owner's control. Activate this ability only any time you could cast a sorcery. The creature side of Nicobolas is a 4-4. The other side is Nickel Bolas the Arisen, legendary planeswalker Bolas, seven loyalty to begin with, with four abilities, plus two, draw two cards, minus three, Nickel Bolas the Arisen deals 10 damage to target creature or planeswalker, minus four, put target creature or planeswalker card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control, minus 12, exile all but the bottom (laughs) card of target player's library. Yet another exceedingly simple corset card designed for new <laughs> players to easily grok how to play Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Wh- where could we possibly begin? Let's, let's try to be some, do some diligence. Mana cost. This mana cost is the same as a card that did actually see some occasional play, and that is Kess, Dissident Mage. Now, Kess was kind of a fan favorite, and she didn't really, um, she didn't really burn down the joint in terms of tournament performance. But Kess did make top eight in some tournaments earlier this year, January and February. And I know a couple of Team Serious players who were really interested in playing Kess at Champs last year. So I would posit that this mana cost is reasonable for Vintage. It's tricky. It's more difficult than other fours that we play, like Jace the Mind Sculptor. But it's not unreasonable. That is to say, not too far removed from, say, Notion Thief. That's true. Right? What make you a f- of a four- for flying creature that comes in and makes your opponent discard a card. How does that make it you Seems feel? like it would be fun in type two. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You are not mistaken. <laughs> so I know I know you're being a little glib, but I would point out that if you can catch your opponent with their red mana <laughs> tapped, right? So this doesn't get pyroblasted on the stack, then this is still going to give you card advantage when they inevitably remove it with something. Yes. Right? You are getting card advantage. That's not to be understated. Also, a 4-4 flying body, if it doesn't get immediately removed, say, for example, you're able to misstep the inevitable Pyroblaster Plow, this card is an immediate threat to most Planeswalkers in the format, right? It immediately kills a new Dak or Jace the Mind Sculptor. If they choose to bounce it with Jace the Mind Sculptor, then more power to them, right? Because you're just getting another card that like comes arg- back down. I don't feel like arguing the so point, just- so, so I'll just concede it for the sake of argument. <laughs> I just point... I mean, this card matches up well against Planeswalkers, for the most part. <laughs> S- same, same point. It, it's, uh, not, I don't it's not as yeah, it's not as good as removing them with Pyroblast, mind you. But again, that's not really what this card is trying to do. 
Do you think that this card's flip ability is in any way relevant? Uh, the short answer is no. The, okay. the flip side of the card is obviously bonkers. Um, <laughs> yeah, but if you get to the point where you're able to flip seven, this, you ought to win that game. Yeah, but seven mana is just not realistic. Yeah. That's the problem. It's true. I, I, I mean, yep. the front side of this card is not a vintage playable. You know, 4-4, four, four, flyer for four does not have me jumping out of my seat. You yeah. know, um, and the, sure, your opponent discards a card. I mean, so does targeting reality smasher. We know we know how <laughs> dissuasive that is. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we know that there are ways to make your opponent uh, disrupted, like Dak Faden and uh, Notion Thief or yes. Dax plus Leovold. That's what I was alluding to. Those kind of things, they're still rarely played, even though we have access to mass discard abilities in the format. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. If this didn't have a flip ability, we wouldn't be talking about it really at all. And the flip ability is so outside the realm of reasonability that it's well, just, it's it's like a it's like a two percenter, right? Yes, you could play this card. Yes, you could flip it in some extraneous scenarios and you probably would win those games. The problem but you're going to lose so often because of how weak this card is. There are ways to build extreme conditionality onto cards that could actually be activated in Vintage and not a liability in other formats. And just ramping up the mana cost is not one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so I think that's the problem here. So you could imagine a, a thing that said, I don't know, um, you know, exile 10 cards from your graveyard and pay 10 life, right? Something like that. Right. <laughs> that, which might which would might see more play in Vintage than this 7-mana activation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, and I'm I'm not uh, a big fan of this card or anything, but I would say that the omnipresence of Pyroblast in the format is just the death knell for anything like this. Yeah, it's just it's just not good enough. Even if you can resolve it when they're tapped out, it's just not good enough. That Sorry, being said, I feel like a party pooper here. Well, that being said, someone is probably going to play this card, and yes, it's probably possible that you could make top eight in the vintage tournament with this card in your deck. Because, you know, it's blue. It pitches to Force of Will. Every once in a while, you're going to be able to cast it, and your opponent won't have an answer. But on average, this card is, I don't think, good enough. I'm going to go with zero. Are you disappointed in my answer? Um, No. I think you're being very pragmatic, and that's called for <laughs> in some cases. Okay. <laughs> now, next up, we have what I think is my favorite magic card of all time. Wow. Runic Armasaur. I love this card. <laughs> Creature Dinosaur for 1GG. Whenever an opponent activates an ability of a creature or land that isn't a mana ability, you may draw a card, and it's 2-5. So let's talk briefly about mana cost, right? 1GG is it's not a very good vintage mana cost. No. We're talking... What's the first thing you... Eternal Witness. Yeah, what's, yeah Eternal Witness. I was going to say Seeds of Innocence. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> seeds of Innocence <laughs> has a, an alternative mana cost, so I... <laughs> well, n- not exactly, but the... The simple truth is that yeah. this is a really unusual mana cost and never sees play in Vintage. But that doesn't mean it's completely unreasonable, right? The sort of deck that could cast this is probably a Deathrite Shaman deck, the sort of deck that can make the mana work. The same kind True. of deck that can cast Leovold, right? Which would be an otherwise unprecedented mana cost also. So I don't want to make too large of a case against this mana cost, but it is unusual at best. This effect is really interesting, and I don't know where you want to begin. But I would just point out that while there are a lot of lands in Vintage that would trigger this at face value, a significant portion of them won't because they will 
have come and gone before you could cast this card <laughs> on average, right? So even if you if you if you cast this card and your opponent has three fetch lands in play, odds are your opponent is going to activate all those fetch lands in response and then devalue future fetch lands. Um, that said, this card has a very powerful impact against shop. No doubt. Because, yes, you're going to get wasted before this comes down, but this turns off in multiple ways, Mistress Factory, and it also makes all future wastelands um, very, very high risk for yeah. your opponent, to the point where you could see them ending a game with multiple wastelands unused well, in play. not to mention all the creatures have activated <laughs> abilities, so... That's yes, the that's the other side of the coin, right? Part there. Yeah, Ravager, Overseer, and Ballista. Hangerback Walker. That and Hangerback Walker. That quadrifecta of creatures all become much worse with the Runic Armistor in play. So worth noting that Ravager has a tr- one tr- activated ability and one triggered ability, which is not affected by the Armistor. So don't don't go thinking you're drawing cards because of modular, which you're not. Um, I think the way you start is you catalog the the effects that. To trigger this, and we've already done that to no mm-hmm. s- no small degree. I mean, we could also add to it um, a bizarre Baghdad uh, library of Alexandria. Library. Um, mm-hmm. We this card is a fantastic answer to Library of Alexandria. By the yeah, way, I, not not unanswerable, um, but it's I, fantastic. I also want to point out it it it, it obviously the Deathrite Shaman. The the second two abilities of Deathrite Shaman yes. trigger this. Oh wait. I'm sorry, I need to correct myself. All three abilities of Deathrite Shaman trigger this because Death Yeah. Yeah. Because Deathrite's first ability is not a mana ability. Exactly. And the reason the reason for that is because it has a target. Also, Eldrazi Displacer still will still trigger this. Mm-hmm. Gristlebrand triggers this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that's true. That one is less relevant, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As does the fire breathing on Inferno Titan. So if you have one of these and your opponent wants to kill it with Inferno have to Titan, you, let you draw some cards. Um, I mean, not 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 kill it. I mean, this thing does die to Inferno Titan. It doesn't die from the three yeah, damage you just don't, though. You can't block. And so <laughs> if they want to, yeah, you just can't block. Um, but if they want to try and kill you faster by fire right. breathing, then you're going to draw a card. Um, what what other? Um, so there are plenty of creatures in in a lot of cases. Jace Rin's Prodigy, good, for example. Good example. So almost every deck has a way to trigger this. The f- the fact that it hits fetch land so hard, um, and these specialty lands like strip mine and wasteland and and uh, library, and then on top of that, it, everything in the workshop deck. I mean, this card is just is a is a mm-hmm. rock solid against the work against workshops. If you can land it against workshops, <laughs> it's essentially. It was not entirely dissimilar from, I think, just landing energy flux in some sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah it, yeah. it just brick walls so many of their That's- effects in one card. Yeah. And because of the huge toughness, it's not susceptible to the normal problems against shops right. that creatures have, which is Ballista. Because right. and it's, there's, there are a lot of situations where they can't they even kill it with a Ballista. That, and even if they could, they don't want the to. And then losing it isn't that. <laughs> you know, they've invested all their resources yeah. into removing it. And the meanwhile, you've refilled your hand. Um, right. The thing I wanted to point out is that I think if you just get this down in the long run in a blue match, it's the quicker you can land this, the better off you're going to be. I think it's somewhat, it's a little bit like Leovold is my guess. Not quite that devastating, but if you can get it down like on turn two or earlier, yeah. my guess is that it's probably, actually it's probably more like a Mystic Remora. It, you're going to draw some cards off it before it goes away. I think that's a fair comparison and you're probably right. I have, because we're delayed in recording this, after the set came out, we I have already played this card in a tournament. It was an eight-person tournament, so it's not going to show up in our results. But what you just said mirrors my experience. Uh, your opponent is 
going to have to either navigate their card selection such that they avoid fetch lands, which if they have something like Dak Faden, they can absolutely do. And so that you get a little bit of mm-hmm. um, insolent, uh, an incidental disruption on them, right? Because it's possible that even with Dak Faden going, they still have a hard time finding the exact combination of mana they want. So they might be put into a situation to have suboptimal mana or just bite the bullet and give you a card to fetch the right dual land. But also, you just get incidental value if you play this really fast. If this is in the kind of deck where you would expect to see it, like a Deathrite deck, then it's totally reasonable to play this on turn two, right? Land Deathrite, land this on two on the play. If they're going to have at most yeah. one turn to fetch a fetch land, to crack a fetch land in response, and then every other fetch land they draw is a liability. So I think your observation is definitely right. Now, the fact that you draw a card when they activate Jace Vryn's Prodigy <laughs> is probably small consolation right. the fact that now Jace Vryn's Prodigy is online, or Jace Telepath Unbound is online and can brick wall this stupid dinosaur because it only has two power. So that's an unfortunate interaction. I would still take it because drawing cards is precious, but another thing that I want to point out is just that even if you're not drawing cards in a blue matchup, yeah. this really punishes all those blue uh, Xerox decks that have shifted to lightning bolts over yes, plows. Yes, it does. Very much so. The, yeah. the other thing I want to point out is that like Mr. Grimora, it doesn't need to this you don't need a lot of activations to have it be worth it. Yeah, if you get true. if you get three draws off of this, it's totally been worth it. Oh, that's huge. I would I would say the over under is on two. Yeah. As soon as I get the second draw off of this, I'm totally happy. Feeling good. You got it, you yeah. got it. Yeah. And the effect that this has on Snapcaster Mages and miscellaneous other creatures is is not to be understated either. Right. Two five this is, a, is this the key. A huge wall. Yeah. So I, I immediately consider this card to be vintage playable. It doesn't have a good home. Bug is on the decline at the moment, but as we just talked about in the uh, challenge results from quarter one and two, Bug could come back real fast. Yeah. And this card could be part of that. This card is enormous against shops in more ways than three. And <laughs> it's anything that you can say that exactly. about is immediately deserves consideration. I agree. I think the fact that this is so, I mean, this is so good against shops. Yeah, it's it, such, it, it's it's, it, it feels like you're cheating when you resolve this against shops. It's like, <laughs> what is going on? If you don't, if I'm not dead on board already, you you just are so behind if you're the shop deck. I mean, you basically have to have a precursor golem atraxos to overcome this. Yeah, and if you, all you have to do is couple this with just one or two even simple removal spells, like this plus a nature's claim, yeah. can make it so hard for them to get past you. Agreed. Because it bricks so many cards. I was trying to think of cre- green creatures that are this good at this mana cost against shops. I feel like there's another one out there. I can't remember what it was. Didn't we review one a couple years ago? Well, at three mana green creatures, Manglehorn. Manglehorn is probably the card I had in mind, but this is way better. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would. I mean, Manglehorn is removal in and of itself, so that's important to note. But I would much rather have this in play than a Manglehorn. True. Yeah. So this card's real hard to evaluate. As I said, I've played it, and I played it in a, a Bant deck, which was more because I really wanted to play with Tamiyo at the same time. <laughs> the, the home is almost certainly better in Bug. Bug. Um, or Leavold, or four-color Leavold. Granted, yeah. Uh, yeah. But a Deathrite-based deck is where you want to exactly. be with this, because the mana, yeah. cost is, the mana cost is real rough, and there isn't a vintage deck around right now that wants to have double trop in play, <laughs> right? There's just no two yeah. ways about it. So you have to turn one Deathrite. You really want death right, or you want to be the sort of deck that can stomach putting a non-blue duel in, right? Yeah. You want to be the sort of deck that can stomach having a Bayou, <laughs> which is, there's not many decks that can be that way. But either way, I think this deck is playable, or sorry, this card is playable. 
the homes are pretty clear. In terms of established decks, the homes are pretty clear, but I think you could make a case that you could shoehorn this into some other archetype with a lot of work and, and just try it out. Like, for example, Rug Delver is not a thing right now, but you could construct a Rug Delver deck that could conceivably cast this, and it wouldn't be out of the realm of feasibility. So I would say I'm definitely going to go non-zero on this because, I, I mean, I already know that I've played this. I know that Brian Kelly has already tried this in the leagues, and he was tweeting about it. I think this card is fun and good enough in enough situations that maybe it's a sideboard card for a bug deck, just as a, a fun of against shops or something. I don't know. But I enjoyed it enough against shops and against other Xerox decks, and that's enough for me, right? Okay, so what's your... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with... I mean, it's it's not very strong, and the, the home for it is not very good right now. So I'm just going to go with one. Oh, I'm going over that. I thought you were gonna, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to go a little bit higher than that. Um, I like this card more than that. Don't get me wrong. I, think, I just think I the think meta game's not right for it. I think this card is too strong against one of the best decks in in, in the format, meaning shops. Mm-hmm. That it's it, it's good enough to even be in a sideboard, in my opinion. Um, okay, and but are you thinking in mostly bug? Yeah, Leovold bug. Maybe maybe something else that has a little bit more green. Um, yeah. Well, that's totally. I agree with you completely on the home. I just don't think gonna it's going to be that common. I think it's more. I think, I'm going to go three. Oh, fun. I could even. I could also see this being used in in a, in a hate bear deck. You know, five color yeah. hate bear okay. cyborg. That's fair. So okay, cool. I mean, it. I mean, it's it's. I just think it's it's like Manglehorn, but better. <laughs> so agreed. All right. Next, let's talk about isolate an instant for white. <laughs> Exile target permanent with converted mana cost one. Boy, this is re- reminds me of another white instant. Mm. Yeah, what what's that other white instant you're thinking of <laughs> that has many more targets and much more utility? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the interesting issue. So this has it can hit enchantments, it can hit artifacts, right. it can hit um, planeswalkers. Oh yeah, one mana planeswalkers. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but there just aren't I mean, many of all those. With respect, Swords to Plowshares hits the only one mana planeswalker already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, obviously, isolate would be would be good if there were permanents that really fit this bill. But we're living the the mental misstep era, right? Yes. Where cards have to be above a certain threshold of power and utility or efficiency in order to see play and all the things that do are, are like above that threshold and or have some kind of resilience there are some creatures that are played because you can play them with a cavern right right but in general there aren't this- non-creature permanents that cost one that you need to be able to remove on a one-for-one basis invented this is the kind of card i wish i had in like 2005 legacy where I could remove against goblins their first turn lackey or their first turn aether vial, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's a very good. That's a very good point. Aether vial is a textbook example of the kind of card that isolate is good for from a flexibility standpoint. You could also hit a and they're just skull clamp. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from mana artifacts, are there any any non creature non mana producing one mana permanents that you can think of? Well, aside from needle. aside from what. Aside from creatures or mana artifacts, like we don't well, soul ring or mana top, but you can't really exile that. <laughs> yeah, that's not doesn't really apply. Pithing needle is probably the most common, but there are so many ways to answer that, especially in white. Yeah, I mean, there's also um, the fact well, that this card is white is actually really kind of boggling <laughs> to me. 
I mean, I, I get it from a flavor standpoint, but functionally, white is the color that needs this effect the least. Interesting. Right? Because it already has fragmentized and swords. And yeah. sword. Yeah. I guess you could also remove a Mystic Remora with this, but you're gonna you're gonna be triggering <laughs> the Remora. <laughs> yeah. That's the only one mana enchantment that I, I can just, think of I, at the I, moment. There's fast bond as well, but that doesn't yeah, really I see agree. much play. Doesn't see much play, and also, well, it, I guess removing it at instant speed is somewhat relevant, but not very. Right. Yeah, I just don't think Isolate has a place, especially in the Mental Misstep era. If you were to talk about a post-Mental Misstep vintage, we might we might be onto something because yeah. it might cause artifacts and enchantments to cost one to start seeing play more. But we'll yeah, see. Vintage just has the structural problem that in a format with Moxen, the the first turn mana mana costs ramp up to two. So one is yeah. not really, oddly enough, one is not really where the format's centered. Legacy, it's much more right. of a legacy card, in my opinion. Probably. All right, next is Nexus of Fate. An instant for five UU. That's seven mana. Take an extra turn after this one. If Nexus of Fate would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, reveal Nexus of Fate and shuffle it into its owner's library instead. We've been burned so many times by these big mana time walks. They just don't see any play. Yeah. I mean, there's there's like these big there. I think there's more than just one other. There's the eight mana one that we yeah, used to be- play. Beacon of Tomorrows. Yeah, I think there are more though, <laughs> and they just they never see play. <laughs> well, yeah, there's um. Uh, let me try and figure out which ones you're thinking of. There is the one where you can buy it back by discarding three cards, right? <laughs> Forget what that one's called. Um, I don't remember what that one's called. But more recently, there's the Temporal Trespass, which is the 11 mana Delve one. Yes. Right? Yes. That never saw any play. That one's probably more playable than this one. Then there's the Awaken one, part the Water Veil. That costs six mana. I play that in EDH, but nowhere else. Yeah, Walk the Aeons is the one I was thinking of. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, Walk the Aeons is also six mana. Buyback, oh, sacrifice three islands. You don't, it's not discard three cards, it's sack three islands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, none of those cards have ever been playable. Yeah, I think it's even better, too. Yeah. No, I think there's just no way that Nexus of Fate is, is going to make the cut. The fact that it's an instant is interesting, but For sure. um, not especially useful in a vintage context either. Right. I mean, in fact, if there's one place where being an instant matters least, it's on effects that time walk. Yeah. <laughs> because the whole point of time walk is to take the next turn. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> Playing it on your opponent's end step is just pointless. It just, there's no difference. There's no functional difference. <laughs> right. Really. <laughs> All right. Then let's talk about Chromium the Mutable. Another legendary dragon, elder dragon. Sorry, legendary creature, elder dragon. For four white, blue, black. Chromium has Flash, this spell can't be countered, and Flying, and the ability, discard a card, colon, until end of turn, Chromium the Mutable becomes a human with base power and toughness 1-1, loses all abilities, and gains Hexproof, it can't be blocked this turn, Chromium is 7-7. Quick question, why does it say base power? Why doesn't it just say power and toughness? I think that that is a reference to when people... um, when there are effects that would change its power and toughness, they add the word base there for clarity. Oh, yeah, got it. Because so if that, you have then castle in play, yeah, it that would, speaks it still to it could become a one right. What yeah. the effect of layers are that uh, change power and toughness? Got I'm it. not sure. I don't actually know if it's actually required to say base power and toughness. But yeah, it might just it, be part of the rules. I but think it's it just might, a- yeah, be a desire to just perfectly place it in the layers. So um, obviously, we're evaluating this card to see whether Dragonlord Kelly 
this is a Dragonlord <laughs> Kelly card or not. I mean, there are a handful of cards that have he view, he has used that are both can't be countered and also have hexproof. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? Sphinx of the Final Word is yep. one of them. Very similar to this. Sphinx of the Final Word was a seven mana five five that had a lot of these same abilities. So th- this might be better than that, except that it doesn't actually have hexproof built in. You have to discard a card, which I know Brian Kelly hates. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, aside from being seven seven, this card is actually worse than Sphinx of the Final Word because the Sphinx has hexproof built in. In addition to the other keywords, it just doesn't have flash. Right. But the Sphinx says instants and sorceries you control can't be countered. So, I mean, which would you rather have flash exactly. or making all your other spells uncounterable? I think from a vintage standpoint where it's pretty clear. There's also no green in this card, so that also dings it. <laughs> yeah. Brian Kelly uh, utility applications. Well, and speaking of green, you, you, this is compared directly to Carnage Tyrant. For one less mana. Don't remind and, me about that card. Yeah, it's a, such I know. a menace. <laughs> and Carnage Tyrant has trample and hexproof, <laughs> which is a lot. Which is real bad. That's yeah, the sorry last about card that. I wanted to talk about before I go to sleep. <laughs> Jesus. Well, your your um your reaction I think is justified, and it also speaks to: Would you rather face a Carnage Tyrant or a Chromium on the other side of the table? Definitely Chromium. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't think Chromium is playable in the sense that. It's possible that Brian Kelly or someone who is channeling Brian Kelly could bring Chromium to an event, have it in their deck, and make the top eight. But I just <laughs> just don't think that you want to be playing Chromium in Vintage. Great. To support that statement, let me look at how many Sphinx of the Final Word there were in, the, in top eights. So in main decks, there have been none. In sideboards, also none. It appears that there has never been a top eight for Sphinx of the Final Word. Don't set challenges like that for Brian, Kevin. <laughs> so I'm going to go with zero for Chromium. Like Same here. It, it's it's just not where we want to be in Vintage. It's Esper, and Esper is not really hot at the moment, but... Yeah, not right. for control decks, yeah. So first of all, we've come to the end of our review for Corset 2019, but we did want to acknowledge that we had a number of other cards recommended or requested that we... Kevin and I discussed and just decided didn't quite make the cut even for discussion, but we wanted to just acknowledge and thank folks for making those requests and recommendations to keep those coming in. Um, we will evaluate those, but um, yeah. we, we, won't, we definitely, if, if you don't request it, there's a good chance we won't evaluate it. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to seem ungrateful, but for the sake of time, we did actually shave some cards off of here. We, we don't want every set review to be like our six-hour Kaladesh <laughs> review. which was a great time for us but probably not the sweet spot for the length of the show so thank you again to all of you who who wrote in especially via twitter but through other media as well to suggest cards for this set review i think we've got a good selection here of what we've covered and we always enjoy to discuss cards even if we don't necessarily predict play for all of them and for review let's talk about those cards we did predict play for Remorseful Cleric, Steve is on one, I'm, or sorry, Steve's on two, I'm on one. Psymaster Thopterist, Steve's on four, I'm on five. Tezzeret, Steve is zero, I'm on one. Infernal Reckoning, Steve's on one, I'm on zero. So we got Tezzeret versus Infernal Reckoning to see who wins. And Runic Armasaur, Steve's on three, I'm on one. That's it for Corset 2019. We'll see when it comes time for report card how close we were. Our question for this episode, as you can imagine, which Corset... 2019 card do you expect to make the biggest splash in vintage do you think it's the dino 
Do you think it's Psy? Do you think it's where we weigh off on the value of Nicol Bolas, maybe? Anyway, let us know what you think. And with that, we thank you for listening to episode 81 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.